What I really worry about, Jack, is is basically the social instability of uh, of, 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 the, of the period that we're headed into. And I, and I want lawyers to kind of pull up from like, what do we need to do to kind of take care of ourselves, to kind of pull back and look at, uh, and look in a fiduciary way about our, our obligations to the broader society here and to be the yeah. cooler heads to help us navigate through these this, this crazy period. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters Podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. This episode of Daily Matters is brought to you by the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference, the world's best legal conference, which is going completely virtual for the first time ever. Get your pass now at cliocloudconference.com. Today's guest is Bill Henderson, the Stephen F. Burns Professor of Law at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law. In the past five years, Bill has been named one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America by the National Law Journal, the most influential person in legal education by National Jurist Magazine, and a member of the inaugural group of Legal Rebels profiled by the ABA Journal. Bill, it's a real pleasure to speak with you today. Jack, likewise. Happy to be on the uh, podcast. Yeah, great to have you. And uh, Bill, I, I follow your your writings closely and love the the data driven approach you take to so many yeah. important legal questions. Uh, as you as you know at Clio, we're we're big fans of data, big fans of data uh, being used to drive strategy. So I'm yes. really looking forward to uh, this conversation. Um, so so maybe just to give our listeners some context, Bill, do you mind starting off? telling us a little bit about your, your experience and your path and the, the work you do outside yeah. the classroom. Yeah, so, uh, so I, I've been in Indiana since 2003, graduated from law school in 2001, worked for the Court of Appeals in Chicago for a year, did a stint at Chicago, uh, Kent, and then uh, started at Indiana. And my, 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 uh, my beat, I built my tenure file from, uh, from basically doing empirical analysis on law firms, primarily because when I was in law school, I couldn't believe all my smart classmates uh, were making career decisions with such limited information. Right. Uh, and I had, had a little bit more life experiences, just like, uh, you guys should really look at the business of really what you're doing here instead of making decisions on prestige and things like that here. Anyway, I started dropping data into, uh, into uh, spreadsheets to teach a class called Law Firm as Business Organizations. Uh, this is 2004, and, I, and uh, I discovered that there was a lot of really interesting correlations, just running averages and correlations. I was finding really counterintuitive things here. So I, and I had a, and a kind of an aptitude and ability to do statistics. And so I, I wrote an article on, uh, on single firm versus two-tier law firms. And uh, like people wanted to read it. I couldn't believe it. And so, uh, and so I wrote another one, and then I wrote another one. I had it pretty soon. I had a tenure file that was kind of novel. And, uh, and so I was able to build a tenure file on, on doing something that people hadn't done before, which is statistical analysis of, 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 the, of, the, of the legal market, primarily larger firms, although I've diversified since then. And I did a fair amount of things related to law school rankings and uh, kind of leveraging. I had this skill set of, uh, of being able to do statistical analysis, which is fairly rare in the legal academy. And I had tons of, of, of unanalyzed data by virtue of the internet. <laughs> And so right. that's the, I, those two things that basically led me, uh, enabled me to have this great career. And your, you, you talked about how you stood among, among your classmates in terms of being a bit more data driven than, than usual. I, yes. I think we, we see the legal profession and I, I think it's very true is, is one that is not really trained in law school to yeah. navigate business and to, to use some of the data driven thinking that so many business leaders are taught to apply to running a good business. And yet, um, even though this is an amazingly, for some, a controversial statement, looking at law firms as a business is, is really key to running a successful law firm. Can you, can you talk a little bit about your experience in, in framing law firms that way and, and, and what headwinds you may have run into in terms of really talking about using data to run law firms as better businesses. Yeah, well, the, uh, 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 I, I, I do want to answer that question, but I want to just go up one level to look at this thing from a, a market uh, point Absolutely. of view here, because there's, because there's, if, if there's a famous law professor, famous anyway, famous study called the Chicago Lawyers One Study, which basically said, if you want to understand the structure of the market, find out who the lawyer's clients are. And at that time in Chicago, 1975, half of the lawyers were serving people 
half of the lawyers were serving organizational uh, clients. And, that, and they were very stratified along lines of, of, uh, of race and, and religion. And so type two Protestants were serving the big corporations, Catholics and Jews uh, were serving the people doing personal injury stuff. Uh, and it was very, very stratified. And, uh, and, uh, and they replicated the study of the Chicago lawyers too. And they found out that basically large law firms and, and corporate clientele were really growing very rapidly. And there was beginnings of atrophy and stress that were taking place in the people law market. And so if we pull back and we look at the economics of, and this is something that Clio understands very well here, if you go back and you look at the market circa 2020, you see there's a lot of law firms making a, a ton of money. And so you can't say that, well, they don't understand business because they're, you know, they're, they're bringing home like, like, like professional athlete money for people in their 50s. And so right. I'm not going to critique their business model here. But, 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 but uh, if you look at people that are trying to make a living serving ordinary people and trying to monetize that legal need here, I mean, you know it is better, as good as anyone, the, the Clio Deedas, it shows that people struggle to make a living. So if you want, yeah. is lawyers serving people? And so we, I want to make sure I don't generalize about, uh, you know, there, there's reasons why the, uh, why the large firm market continues to operate. And primarily, it's a credence good market where it's hard to measure quality. So you fall back on measures like prestige and where you went to law school and how much your rates are. And that kind of black magic kind of, uh, you know, thing here all persuades clients to pay, you know, thousands of dollars for, you know, some M&A specialist, you know. Yeah dollars. So, uh, so uh, that said, uh, you know, in your book, actually, uh, the client centered lawyer who really talks about the fundamentals of, 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 of identifying a market niche, uh, building process and data and discipline to it here and doing one or two things very, very well here and, and still possible, uh, primarily because of the nature of the competition to build a great uh, a law firm that's that, that that's really even focused at the retail level here, you just have to you have to drive up the quality and you have to drive down the per unit cost and you actually have to market. And so yeah. uh, those disciplines, if they could be taught in law school, would allow so many of my students that don't, can't hang a, can't, uh, don't join a large law firm where they can basically live off of the, the, the legacy of the large law firms. Uh, they, so probably three out of every four lawyers need the, need the business skill set. They need marketing, they need data, they need strategy, they need process. Uh, and they need accounting and financial statements here. And, and, they, and, and actually just teaching them will make the real say, oh, I can hire an accountant. Oh, I can hire a, a marketing person. I can listen to them and I can treat them as my partners, even though the, the ethics rules don't permit you to have them as partners. Well, the, the lawyer has the discretion to treat them like partners right. uh, as long as you stay on the right side of the ethics rules. But, you know, I'm, t I'm talking to a businessman, Jack uh, 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 Newton. I mean, Jack, you, you know this. <laughs> I know this, but maybe not all of our, our, our listeners do. And I yes. think that's your comment around the law school curriculum is interesting because they are foundational skill sets to any lawyer, um, but they're, yes. they're not taught in most law school curricula, at least. And, and yeah. we're starting to see a little bit of, I think, the more innovative law schools are starting to layer in aspects of this to their, uh, their programming. But most lawyers are, are still not graduating with this as a, a core competency. And maybe let's talk about some of the data of the current climate that that lawyers should be aware of as well and how that might help drive their strategy and decision-making in a, in a COVID-19 era. You, you, you stay really closely plugged into, uh, you, you seem to be a data omnivore, uh, Bill. You, you seem yeah. to be able to process yeah. uh, data coming in from all fronts. Can you share with, with me what some of your high-level takeaways are of, of COVID-19, yeah. uh, the impacts it's had on the legal industry, maybe both on the, the big firm and the, the small firm level, and what macro level trends you think are important to, to pay attention to as well? Well, the, uh, the, there's, there's absolutely no doubt uh, about it that, that COVID-19 is having a really, really big impact. And I want to just point to one of my former students. I won't, I, won't, I won't call her out here. I'm not sure she wants to be called out here, but she's, she's flourishing running a family law business. And, uh, and, and, and she is somebody who said, hey, I wasn't a very good law student, but she, uh, but, but she was very good at observing what worked. And she went to work for a, a, fairly, a fairly famous uh, uh, law firm that's in the kind of the family law space. And they're famous because they advertise a lot here. And, and, and her friends 
said to her, uh, uh, I said, make sure you pay attention to his processes because, uh, because that's really his secret sauce here. So she was paying attention. So she, she realized, well, this isn't rocket science legally, uh, but, I, I, but with a little bit of process and a little bit of marketing, I think I could stand this on her own. And she's targeting a niche market. Uh, it happens to be kind of a, a, a minority market. And, 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 and she was very much into making sure that she got alternative fees right. And so yeah. she came up with a retainer model. And she said, since COVID-19 here, she said that, uh, that uh, there's so much uh, uh, that uh, or couples she know that are going to end up getting divorced here. And, you know, she doesn't want people to get divorced because it's good for her business, but she knows it's going to happen. But she, she said that, that the flat fee model uh, where there's a monthly retainer is actually, she's actually doing extremely uh, uh, well, and so that right. this is somebody who laid the foundations of a business with the marketing and the pricing, and so she's doing, she's flourishing, she's growing, she's actually uh, opening offices in different uh, uh, states in the, in the in the country here, and so, uh, but it was basically the business fundamentals allowed her to flourish, and so, uh, and so, so that's a kind of a small firm example. On the larger firm uh, front. Uh, uh, I've talked to many managing partners that are just petrified because they, the, the rubber band has been stretched out here. And there's so many people that are going to say, I can't come back to the office because of my kids, or I can't come back to the office because of health concerns. or I can't come back to the office because of the, these are the people that I live with, or I don't need to come back to the office here. Can I work out a deal? And that, and that, uh, this is, this is fine on one level and kind of the short to medium term, because, you know, we've all figured out a way to kind of work from home here. But if you think about things like training, and you think yeah. about things like culture, uh, uh, there's, this is a real challenge because uh, our kind of our, our atomistic kind of approach to how we solve things here is going to make it kind of difficult uh, to, uh, to, 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 to replicate things like skill sets. I mean, the, the managing partner at a major firm said, said all these people are saying, we don't need this real estate. He goes, wait a second here. He said, you assume that everybody in the, in, in this, uh, in this uh, office has been well-trained here is like, uh, you 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 uh, uh, you train by working over somebody's shoulder here, and you work in close environments here. And to think that we can replicate this with Zoom here is a fool's errand. Yeah. And uh, I think that he had a point here. And 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 there's literally not a single managing partner that I know of that feels like they're all looking for answers here. Because uh, as you know, lawyers are fairly difficult to manage, and they're pretty contentious. And and uh, you're trying to get them to do something that's good for the collective. And uh, and, um, and, and uh, <laughs> it's kind of hard to kind of wrangle them back into what w would be would be a long-term business model. I'm, I'm worried about it. And uh, It's interesting uh, too, you commented on, I think as many businesses went remote at, you know, back in March when we were starting to see uh, COVID really hit in a strong way. Yeah. We're all, and I, I, I was aware of this at Clio as well, we're, we're all coasting on the momentum that we built up yes. as an in-person entity and, and thinking about how do you translate and it could almost be deceptive you know you've, yeah. you know, you're operating so well in those first few months of work from home because you do yeah. have the benefit of people coasting off of the training and the trust and the relationships that they built we have a savings in, account when they're off it's a good way of putting it you've got that savings account to fall back on but if you are thinking about work from home and distributed as the long-term future um, not that those aren't unsolvable problems, but you need to be thinking very explicitly yeah. about how yeah. you go and, and solve those challenges. Uh, you know, uh, um, uh, I, I want to tie this, this, this point you're just making into the, the, the previous question to make sure I answer this. When you asked how uh, COVID is changing things here, I, I focused a huge amount on diffusion theory on legal evolution because I feel like that's the key, understanding that diffusion theory is a key toward accelerating the adoption of innovations. And there's a science out there, so might as well use the science as opposed to, uh, and one of the key factors, there's, there's five factors that you use to evaluate an innovation to see if it's good enough to get adopted. One of them is relative advantage. And, and the and relative advantage has dramatically changed since COVID because you can't meet in person with, the, uh, with people. So it's made technology much more advantageous. I and mean, we had Zoom, uh, but we weren't adopted until we aptly had to because relative COVID changed the relative advantage. But uh, the kind of the key one here, there's five factors, but the, the one that's key here is cultural compatibility. And we've suddenly dramatically become much more facile with technology, uh, communication technology. And that is the biggest factor. The fact that you, you, you have an entire class of people now that are comfortable using uh, teleconferencing, which is dramatically need, needs 
uh, not for all travel, but for some travel. And it uh, facilitates a different kind of, uh, you know, uh, meeting. There's, there's no doubt, uh, you know, about uh, that here. And so I forgot the actual question you asked, but it was connected to it. Yeah, well, I think you, you, you tied that in nicely. And there, there is, I, I think, uh, um, the way I've talked about it, Bill, is it, it feels like there's been a decade of technological transformation yeah. that's happened in legal in the space of, uh, of 10 weeks almost. And, yeah. and, and, and yes. it's, it's really been remarkable to see the amount of technology adoption, as you pointed out, the, the increased ease at which lawyers are using technology through yeah. our own legal trends report research over the course of the last three months, we've seen yeah. just metrics around you know eighty plus percent of legal professionals using Zoom in a in a in a facile way. Uh, those are if you showed me that statistic back in February and said what year is this survey from, I would have said <laughs> it's it's from the year twenty thirty or beyond, right? So I think that's that's really the incredible part of, of what COVID-19 has helped catalyze in the legal industry. And maybe that's a, a great segue um, to my next question, which is how COVID-19 has maybe changed what you think the strategies for law firm success might look like. You, you wrote a, a great article a couple of years ago for the American lawyer on the five strategies of highly successful <laughs> yeah. firms. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm curious, I, I encourage anyone to look up the, well, we'll link to the article in the, in the show notes. Um, but how do you think about those strategies applying yeah. in a, in a COVID-19 yeah. world and, and, and yeah. what's changed? Okay. Then, you know, Jack, first of all, I, I'm incredibly flattered that somebody went back and read that article because I reread it before uh, our podcast and I realized how, how much I love that article. And, uh, and, and uh, uh, that was written. It's a good article. Last. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, let me answer the question uh, directly. Uh, nothing's changed here, in my opinion, uh, for COVID on that one, because the, the same formula, if you want to be a great law firm and, and, and in, in terms of actually being a partnership uh, and kind of growing to, to, to solve some of the most complex problems that are out there and attract the, the, the you know, remunerative and interesting work here, you need to share risk and be a true a partnership. And so I would I would say that you need a strategy. You need to you need to listen to one another here. And you and and as you know, strategy is agreeing what not to do. Like I'm no longer going to do this. I'm no longer going to do this. I'm just going to do this, and it's we're going to do it together as a team. So nothing has changed here. But those five strategies, uh, I, I really like looking back at them here. But but uh, in, in in for the the readers that haven't read the article, basically what came out of this was a. Uh, this is the last days of when I was at Lawyer Metrics, a company I founded doing data analytics. We took a huge data set from the American lawyer and it took us a long time to build it, but we basically were able to model out all the different factors that led to law firm profitability here and the regression model that came out of it. We said we gave completely data-driven advice uh, for it. And one of the one of the things was was like, oh, you should you should get heavy into financial services and investment banking here. But there was a kind of an asterisk to that first suggestion was like, okay, in order to do that, you need a time machine because almost all the major law for Wall Street firms here that have significant investment banking ties here, those ties date back to the 1930s and 1940s. It's literally almost impossible to break in to, to, to the most lucrative investment banking and financial services work. So our first suggestion was, uh, Get a time machine. <laughs> Go back to 1930. And, uh, Practical and, and, suggestion. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, but but there were there was a couple of more that were there were more serious out there. From I mean, there actually was serious. Is is to show you that it was a sticky market and that basically incumbency advantage was hugely important here. But we we wanted to show that basically this is one of the features that makes law for the legal market uh, unique here is the fact that that you have this endurable, you know, incumbent like moat advantage. But one yeah. of the things that carries over would be uh, practice group concentration, which is the, the most profitable firms are the ones that do a few things very well. They take things off the menu. It's kind of like in New York here, uh, the, the best restaurants aren't the ones that have 50 items, they have six items and they're all uh, done exquisitely here. And uh, another thing that came out of that strategy was the important, and this is COVID related, although it's, it doesn't, hasn't changed here. The most profitable firms were geographically lumpy. So in other words, that although they may have 
10 offices, uh, they actually have the concentration of the most professionals in the central office. And there's an economic geography explanation for that is, is that actually in-person communication is the absolute best, highest bandwidth way to do complex uh, work here. And so Paul Weiss is somebody that, does, that, that did very well in the analysis. Uh, and they actually have, although they have many offices across the globe here, most of their offices are in New York. And Brad Karp, uh, I've heard him say here, if I want to talk to my partners, I just go into the uh, the, the stair, stairwell and I just walk up and down the floors of, of my, my Manhattan you know, firm here. And, right. um, and that is really, really key here. So doing a few things, and, and Brad Karp would probably say, we do four things at this firm here. If we don't, if it doesn't fit those four things here, we have the discipline to say, no, we push it away. So they behave like a partnership and they push things away. And then they have everybody in physically in the close proximity. That has two effects. It allows you to do very sophisticated work better because you're in the same place physically proximately. The other thing is it has cultural benefits because, because if you're behaving in an unpartner-like way here, you can be socially shunned here. And so that uh, it's hard for, for me to behave in an unfaithful way when I see the person that I'm in business with, you know, in the hallways. And so that has cultural benefits to it. And so I won't go over the whole model here, uh, but, but, uh, but, but these are all, I mean, Evan and Parker and I wrote the article. He said, you would be an absolute fool to bet against this model. And so many yeah. lawyers are basically reluctant to even, it's like we wrote it in layman's terms here. Anybody can benefit from the model here, but you actually have to read the model or read the, read the, read the, read the advice here. You know, so. Yeah, I would encourage anyone listening, uh, read, read the article. And, and it sounds like the, the takeaway here is that that advice holds more now than ever. And maybe I'll, I'll pivot the quick question. Be a business, be a business and share be, risk with your partners. Be a business. When you look at the COVID-19 crisis, if we look back at previous financial crises, such as the 2008-2009 the yeah, yeah, financial yeah. crisis, I, I think it's tempting to look at the legal market at a macro level and say the, the legal market as a whole yeah. dropped, and, and that was yeah. true. But what's true within that macro picture is individual firms emerge as winners or losers. There's yep. firms that come out stronger. There's firms that yep. really find a way of, of making a, a crisis turning a crisis to their benefit and, and firms that suffer and come out from a crisis weaker or having failed outright. Yeah. What, what are some of the things that, that you think, especially as it comes to, to maybe uh, looking at the data on the, on the ground today around COVID-19, what are some of the things you think are, are separating what will ultimately end up being the winners in this crisis versus the losers? Uh, uh, um. Uh, and I don't have hard data to back this up here, but, but this would be this is this would be what I would be doing here. And it's based upon work I, I used to do on engagement surveys within law firms. You 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 have to get inside the head of your stakeholders here. So David Meister uh, was uh, is now a retired uh, you know consultant. He used to be at Harvard Business School, and he did the very best you know, model work on, on professional services. So how do you make money in a professional services firm here? You have, you, it's, 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 it's a function of balancing two things, your elevator assets, your people and your clients. And so you, you have to get really good people and you have to get them work together in a, in a way that delights the clients. If you do those two things together here, you make profits, but you constantly have to keep your talent happy and your clients happy because it's a delicate, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 balance here. And I, I think that, that many, many uh, law firm leaders underinvest in getting inside the head of their talent. And so, and they, and they tend to pander to their equity class, which is very, very short-sighted here. You have to think about uh, your up-and-comers and keeping them happy as opposed to the kind of the, the short-termism of your, of your equity partners. And so, and, and to a certain extent, you should be a great, not to a certain extent, a great leader would look at his equity partners and he would he or she would appeal to their long-term interest in leaving a legacy and behaving like a fiduciary and uh, uh, we'll all be better off if we run it for the longer term here here and curb some of the short-term interests of basically making sure you maximize in this fiscal year some of what you need to do right now is maybe invest some of the profits in this fiscal year so that you could have a better uh, 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 you know, so you could train the talent and make some adjustments and maybe you might need to close some offices or hire some talent, uh, 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 what have you, uh, but persuading people to take the longer uh, view and, and, and taking some of that spoils or some of that froth and investing it in the next 
generation. And this is, I don't think that this is rocket science here, but, but this is the, this is the block and talent of being a great manager and leader and, and persuading your equity partners to, to get their hat out of this fiscal year here uh, and appeal to their values and their emotions uh, to say, look, uh, let, let's let, let's 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 take some money off the top here, and we're, you're going to get it back in in, in money and treasure and glory <laughs> five years yeah. from now. Here, and that, that's really such a, a structural challenge with with law firms when you're talking about investing in law long term transformation, or or even trying to position yourself for what is really a pivotal moment in the you know the world and navigating yeah. that change yeah. is thinking about a multi year investment when when so many law firms disperse all the profits at the end of the year and kind of start from zero on January 1st that's that's a very challenging model for most law firms to embrace well this is because this goes back to what we we're talking about before here the the lack of uh, business training here if you if this is where it would be so advantageous to bring in somebody uh, on the management team here that's run say a technology company uh, because because the whole thing with the technology companies are folks we're going to build this model here and 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 and, and we're going to play the thing out here so we're not going to make any money until we hit this number and then our margins are going to explode here and it's like and we want to be at the far end of that you know scale of explosion here and you can and have the MBA explain to them just like uh, 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 you're thinking too small here. Uh, yeah, you might be happy with $800,000 here, but uh, you can make a lot more uh, money and do a lot more good. And, 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 uh, by, uh, and, and the MBA would explain to them uh, the, the advantages of, of, of basically working together as a team here and thinking a little bit bigger and thinking a little bit, you know, scaling your expertise. And uh, the lawyers just don't have the training and uh, they just don't have the frame of reference. And it would be great to diversify the management team here so that they would be listening to a marketer, into a strategist, into a technologist at the same time they're listening to other lawyers. Agree. Uh, I think I can be a, a super powerful ad to, uh, to, to any law firm or, or even brought in as, as a consultant, get, bring somebody to a law firm retreat and bring in some of that, that outside thinking that, that I think so many law firms need, especially when it comes to navigating a crisis like this that does require a little bit of, of, of thinking about investing in a, a J curve kind of investment, realizing we're going to make some losses. We're going to go and do a bit of a trough yeah. here, or we're going to need to take some money off the top and we'll see the payoff in 2021 or even 2022. Well, well let me suggest that, 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 that there's probably people in the client base of Clio that, that, that have figured this out here. And if we, and if you identified, you know, the one or 2% of your client base, I bet you they would say, well, we're already doing this. I mean, there, there are some great run law right. firms out there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I uh, highlight a bunch of them in my, in my book, actually, that there's, I'm inspired every day yeah. by the amazing work our, uh, our customers are doing. Um, but I, I think more than ever with, with COVID-19, this is something that is maybe moving to become more of a table stakes requirement. Yes. At, law firms as opposed yes. to one that you see the leading yes. edge law firms embracing. Yes. I agree with uh, that. Bill, uh, a related uh, question or not, sorry, not, not related, but to pivot the conversation slightly, um, a, another uh, article you wrote and, and this was back in 2016 as, as well, but it's more relevant today than ever was an article on solving the legal profession's diversity problem. Yeah. Uh, and this is a topic we've been exploring in depth over the last month on, on the show here. Yeah. And in the article, there's a phrase you use. I, I really like uh, in that considering the possibility that the profession's lack of progress on diversity is a systems problem rather than a failure of moral resolve. Yes. Yes. And I, I think that's a really great way of framing the problem. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that and, and, why it's an important distinction for lawyers to understand yeah. and, and how you think, maybe, yeah. maybe especially in the context of uh, what we've seen over the past month uh, in, in the aftermath of George yeah. Floyd's killing, yeah. how you think that, that we might be able to translate this into you know, some, some important change in the legal industry. So the, uh, the, the article, uh, thanks for highlighting that uh, article, which you can find on SSRN here, uh, how to solve legal professions diversity problem. That was basically everything I learned from lawyer metrics. That was the, that was the, uh, I wanted to make sure I documented here the, uh, and it, I do believe it's a system problem. Uh, I, the, the, the reason this came to light here is I've been around long enough to see basically the washer dryer cycle of basically a, a group of partners coming together and just say, we're going to solve this diversity problem. This is really serious. 
and kind of beating their chest here and hiring a bunch of uh, diverse recruits here. And then a few years later here, uh, they end up leaving and they, and, right. and then a new group of people come in and they beat their chest. And say, oh no, we really care about it here. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and so that uh, the idea would be that it's just a lack of uh, you, you know, the prior generation didn't care as much as we did here and seeing the cycle, this washer dryer cycle take place again, 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 uh, lawyer metrics was was was, uh, was focused on bringing data primarily to data analytics. That was in our early days. We eventually broadened out to do strategy, data related strategy. But to to get in and look at say employee evaluations and who was evaluating them and the nature of the work that they were doing here, we do these big money ball studies, and we would and we would see that uh, for example that uh, that uh, in in large law firms. That, uh, that diverse associates were overwhelmingly getting, they're getting disproportionate work from other from diverse partners. And it wasn't just like diverse, it was just like African-American associates were looking to get work from African-American partners. Uh, uh, Asian associates were looking to get work from Asian partners. Well, the problem is, is that your most developmentally rich work uh, was, 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 uh, was held mostly by white men. And so, right. and white men would have, would have other, would have, would have white uh, uh, male associates working for them here, tend to go to fancy schools here, and they would get developmentally rich work here. Now that article is 10 pages or 12 pages long here, and it walks through, it collects all the social science that's ever been published that's relevant to this question, and a lot of the work we did at Lawyer Metrics, and it lays out, say, overwhelmingly here, if you, if you take a diverse associate and you make sure a, that they almost, they, first of all, you take off the aptitude off the table here. If you can get into it, if you can get into a, a, an ABA accredited law school and graduate and get hired here, you have the intellectual horsepower to do it here. So let's just take that off the table. And I, and I, and I deal with that in the article. You're smart enough. Okay. Yeah. All the legal professions filled with smart people. We don't need to make gradations on smartness. But, but uh, the second issue, and these are five inputs, the second input you need here is do you have the motivation to do it? And how often have people hired or law firms hired people that don't want to do high stakes professional services work here? I'm smart enough to do it, but I want to be a public interest lawyer. I want to be a government lawyer. I just, I don't want to do the kind of work here. And so that's, that's, uh, you have a lot of people that, that get enticed by the uh, high salary and the prestige of it, but they're, they're, but you, you, you have a values mismatch. So you got to find somebody who wants to do the work here. So if you get somebody who's smart enough, and that's easy to find, and somebody who wants to do the work, which is a little bit harder to find here, everything else goes into uh, three things here. One is, are you getting developmentally rich work? And this comes from a big study that was done in the American Journal, or published in the American Sociological uh, Review, that showed that overwhelmingly, if you, uh, and this is, this is actually worth me uh, explaining uh, the, paraphrasing what this study was here because it's absolutely remarkable. Rock yeah, peer reviewed here. It's like uh, 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 the sociologists wanted to answer the question of who can use a family medical leave act. So in other words, I'm a male or a female. I need to go take care of my parent. Or I need to go take care of my kid here. And I need to step off partnership track or I need to step out of the workforce. And who can actually do this and not suffer rear career ramifications. So in other words, if I come back here, I'm, I'm still on track. And the sociologists persuaded a major law firm with over a thousand lawyers to be their sample study. And they looked at 10 years worth of data. And what they found out was, is that if you, if you want to be somebody who can take step out of the workforce and, uh, and then come back in here, uh, you need to get, it was all about the quality of assignments that you got in your first two years at the firm here. If you were getting work from, from, from major power brokers in the firm here, you were deemed to be a star here and you were free to jump off the, the partnership. Uh, the, you, you, were, you were deemed to be okay to kind of go to part-time and go, go on the mommy track, so to speak, here and come back. You paid zero penalty. It was all a function of doing developmentally rich work here. Where you went to school didn't matter. Gender didn't matter. Race didn't matter. Law school GPA didn't matter here. It was all about getting these early at bats. And this, uh, <laughs> and, I've, and I've sometimes pointed this out here. If you look in, uh, in, uh, in Europe or in Canada in hockey, we'll use the hockey one because you're from Canada here. Uh, 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 kids <laughs> Thanks for speaking born, my language, Bill. People that were born in January and February are much more likely to make it to the NHL. Why? Uh, because, the, because, because they were slightly bigger kids on their, on their, on their, on their junior hockey teams and their coaches yeah. gave them more time. So yeah. this is all about compounding early advantage. And so, uh, and so 
my friend Scott Westfall, who's uh, who's now uh, runs the Harvard program in the legal profession, uh, used to fight bitterly when he was at, uh, at, at, at Goodwin Proctor. He says, you have no idea how important it is to make sure that this work gets allocated fairly because because you're basically handing out opportunities to learn and grow and if this thing if there's if, if it's not uh, if it's not uh, allocated in a, in a way across demographics uh, you're going to have this you're going to have this diversity problem compound in very negative ways here and and this is the, there needs to be awareness not only on the manager side here but on the associate side here because because my tendency is going to be to go and get work from somebody just like me that's fine for a white male but for a female or for a diverse associate here, you have to fight that impulse. You have to go and you have to find somebody who has the challenging work to show that you can cut it. And so, uh, and so, uh, you know, that was one of the other things. The second, yeah. the fourth one was feedback uh, and the importance of feedback. And the fifth one was importance of mentorship. So, uh, so, uh, but there's a five factor model. You, you build the system in that way and this diversity problem will solve itself. Well, we'll make sure there's a link to this article in the show notes as well, Bill, but I think it was uh, a, a piece that, again, is more relevant today than yeah, ever. Yeah. And something I was thinking about as you were speaking is a, uh, a metaphor I've, I've heard before about diversity and inclusion. I think that that works really well. Diversity is being asked to the party and inclusion is being asked to, to dance at the, at the party. Yeah, yeah. And really, yeah. I think it feels like what you're saying is a lot of law firms fall down thinking that the diversity piece, solving that and inviting folks to the, the party is the trick, but they're not being given the equal opportunity to, to shine and not being given those developmental opportunities. That's kind of the, would you agree that's the key thing that's missing here? That's the key thing. And there's so many law firms that pride themselves on their free market system. They have no idea uh, the damage that it does here to invite them to the dance here, but the free market system makes it very difficult to basically uh, to get an, an actual dance date. And so uh, it, and, and, and it allows us to fall back on, on some very, uh, unfortunately, long-term invidious things that, uh, that come out of this one here. This is, this is management leadership. This is management. It, it, this is why the, we, we need data and management discipline brought into the law firms here. This is a systems problem. It is not a, it, it's got moral dimensions, but it's not a moral failing. It's a systems failing. Yeah. I think that's the frame that's so important for, that, that washer dryer cycle you're talking about, so many law firms going, mm -hmm. I'm sure we're going to see a whole bunch kick off that cycle in the wake of the, the social issues we've seen over the course of the last month. Yeah. Um, but you need to think about how do you get it right? How do you avoid being back to square one uh, in a year or two? And, and I, I think you've offered a really useful set of tools for, um, for thinking in a new way about that. Uh, and again, uh, we'll make sure there's a, a link to that article in the the show notes. Let, let's keep moving, Bill, because there's a couple, there's so much I want to talk to you about and, and we're, we're starting to run out of time, but you're the co-founder of the Institute for the Future of Law Practice, uh, IFLP, or we'll call IFLP to save, uh, to save a bit of time in the remainder of the podcast. So this is a nonprofit that designs and delivers curricula and training for T-shaped rather legal professions. Uh, and that's law that's combined with data, process, technology, design principles, and business. So a lot of the topics yeah. and themes we've talked about yeah. over the course of our conversation yeah. today. Can, can you talk about what prompted you to co-found yeah. that institute and, and, and some of the impacts you've been able yeah. to have? So I, I, after I left a, a, a lawyer metrics, we sold the company. I did a one-year tour of duty, kind of moved on from there here. Uh, I had been involved in this pilot called the Tech Lawyer Accelerator, uh, which is basically somebody that was working in a big technology company telling the dean of a law school, hey, you know, uh, how I solve problems in my legal department, is, is it, none of it is really taught in law school. We should bring some of this to law school curriculum. And anyway, we, we, I helped stand up a, stand, uh, a, a program at Colorado in 2014. And the key was uh, uh, three weeks of kind of data process technology business and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and then uh, we matched them up with the summer employment. In, in 2014, the market had completely collapsed for basically 1L to 2L summer employment. And so we went out and recruited $20 an hour jobs uh, in legal departments and technology companies. And we said, if we, if we can't justify uh, adding $20 an hour of value here, we should just hang it up here. And we got incredible feedback from employers running about 20 students a, a year through the program. I brought some Indiana students who have put them in here. 
And in 2017, you know, after I left Lawyermetrics, I had a little bit more time on my hands here. Steve Harmon from Cisco said, when are you guys going to get your act together and scale that program so we can hire more of those terrific uh, TLA grads? And so uh, we did a needs analysis and uh, me and Bill Moods, who was the, the lawyer that I was speaking to that was at uh, the technology legal department. And, uh, and uh, we got some law firms, law firms together with some uh, technology companies, some new law providers and uh, some law schools. And they said, all right, let's turn it into a 501c3 nonprofit. And we ran a, a boot camp uh, at Northwestern Law School in the summer of 2018 that brought in people from a lot of different schools, including uh, Osgood Hall in Canada. So yep. it, was, it, was, it, was, it was international from the get-go. And then in 2019, we expanded to three boot camps. We had one in Canada and at Osgood. We had one at Northwestern. We had one at Col University of Colorado Law School. And we had, I don't know, 30 different school students involved here. And they all went on to paid internships, including many that went on to seven-month field placements. Like, I have a kid right now. Uh, it's uh, Cisco's legal department. Uh, last year, I had, I had, I had, I had students at, at, at Cisco and Chapman and Cutler. And, uh, and uh, you know, and I've, we've just had, we've, I've had a student at Cummins, I've had a student at, at Cat Muchin on several of the field placements. So they're getting pay and academic credit at the same time. And we're basically baking in, in, in an apprenticeship into the third year of uh, a law school. But the, uh, uh, our, uh, you had said something regarding iFlip that we're creating T-shaped legal professionals. And we believe, uh, we believe that, that lawyer is not the quite, quite right word here. We need people that, that are, this is, this is where I'm going to tease Richard Suskin here for a second here. Richard says in his books here, we're trans, we're, 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 we're moving from one-to-one -one consultative services to one-to-one, one-to-many products and solutions. Okay, Richard, I completely agree with that, but there's a lot that's necessary, a lot of infrastructure that's necessary to make that transition. And iFlip is, is making, it was doing the first cut to build the infrastructure to tool people up to work in a one-to-many legal environment. And that means you gotta learn design, uh, foundational knowledge in design, technology, process, data, and business operations. So you can collaborate with other allied professionals. And so, uh, and so, uh, and so you know, that's the, that's the hope of iFlip. By the way here, we're fundraising, we need money here. So, uh, so don't think that this, is, this problem has been solved here. We, we're, we're still trying to figure out a way to kind of we think we've got a long-term business model, but we need seed capital to kind of get it up and running here because our long-term goal is to create highly scalable educational products for mid-career professionals to basically solve the upscaling problem here. Instead of making it like a law school course you got to go to, nobody has the time or the money to do that. Uh, you want to make some really high-quality asynchronous products here that allow the whole profession to upscale for a few hundred bucks. Where, where should people go if they want to learn more about that or, or how they might be able to support the organization, Bill? www.futurelawpractice.org uh, 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 is our website, or iFlip, Google will bring it up quickly. And I've written a bunch of stuff on it on Legal Evolution. So if you go to my publication, legalevolution.org, and just type in iFlip into the search bar here, you'll see a bunch of articles and get a bunch of updates. You know, uh, but uh, we are, we are, if somebody, I'm the Stephen F. Burns chair on the legal profession. If I could find another Stephen F. Burns here with that kind of money here, you could change the whole industry. So uh, we're on the best bargain. We're the best bargain in, uh, in uh, philanthropy right now here. If you want to, if you want a moonshot, that's going to work here. We've got the, we've got the blueprints. We should. That's talk. great. Well, it's re really, really exciting work. And we'll, we'll leave that call to action out there. Okay. Um, Bill, to conclude in our, our last few minutes here, I'd, I'd love to continue the conversation around education and, and ask yeah. you two questions, maybe, you know, number one, what's it like being an educator right now? What kind of anxiety are you seeing in your, in your students and, and how does talking to them about the future change with this backdrop of a, a global pandemic? And uh, the, the pandemic and impact on bar exams has been a, a big topic yeah. of conversation yeah. in the in the Twitter sphere, certainly, and and uh, would love to hear your take on the the relevance of the bar exam in this day and age. <laughs> okay. okay, so uh, first of all, here I, I, uh, uh, um, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty regarding coming back in the in the fall here. I actually feel very grateful to be affiliated with a big research one university here because uh, because uh, uh, I, I you know. You know, I have a job here and I have work uh, uh, to do. So I'm, I'm immensely, I think that the, uh, the, the, the educators, although we have a challenge at it, we're, we're, we're kind of blessed knowledge workers. We're basically can do most of our work via uh, Zoom 
uh, here. And so uh, we at Indiana are planning to go back to a hybrid model, uh, and we actually have a fairly innovative block scheduling approach here that I think is, 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 is brought out the best of my colleagues to figure out a way to kind of thread this needle. Actually, I, I have to give props to, to, the, to, the, to the Dean team at Indiana. I think they've done an amazing job of trying to figure out how to, how to optimize student education. That said, I mean, under these circumstances, I, what I really worry about, Jack, is, is basically the social instability of, uh, of, 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 the, of, the, of the period that we're heading into. And I, and, and I want lawyers to kind of pull up from like, what do we need to do to kind of take care of ourselves, to kind of pull back and look at uh, and, and look in a fiduciary way about our, our, our obligations to the broader society here and to be the yeah. cooler heads to help us navigate through these, this, this crazy period that we're living through here because, you know, the airlines are about to lay off a bunch of uh, people, you know, hotels aren't going to be uh, far behind here. You know, that people are going to uh, uh, not have money to pay their rent and house payments here. And this is going to be uh, kind of a domino thing here. And we need to, we need to think about objectively longer term uh, solutions uh, here and to not uh, to descend into kind of uh, tribal or partisan uh, traps here. And I, uh, I, and my students are frankly worried about this. And so in addition to kind of, let me find a job where so I can pay my student loan things here. It's like, you know, actually we have a higher calling right now here to, to, to use our superior education and analytical skills to think in an objective way and to pull back and to get into solution uh, mode here. And I really do. I mean, this is, this is a time for us to kind of stand up and kind of like, you know, you know, uh, uh, step into the breach and think yeah. in, in a broader uh, way here. And I think that, you know, hopefully this will bring out the best in the profession here, but let's, let's not get, let's not focus on like, Oh, how are we going to, how are we going to, how are we going to solve our narrow, you know, how are we take care of ourselves? I think if the lawyers think about how they take care of ourselves, society's cooked. And society needs a lot of help right now. How yes. And so let's, let's focus on the broader needs of society here. Let's, let's be lawyers at their best, but just lawyers being problem solvers, thinking objectively, thinking about how to thread long-term interest, thinking about how to quell, uh, you know, a kind of outbreaks of, of the, they're kind of emotionally driven that are, that are counterproductive here. You know, the best, the, the, the best lawyers talk their clients out of doing stupid things, right. you know? And so let's, let's, let's be the lawyer here. That's just like, you know, uh, lawyers actually are great problem solvers. So we, we may not be trained to be great business people, although we make a living here, but, but actually I do think the lawyers are best positioned now to- Well, coming back to one of the earlier points you made too, Bill, the, the core legal deliverable, the core skill set a lawyer exits law school with is, is, yeah. is the, that's kind of the hard part of the job that learning yes. how to become a lawyer, learning those skills, that's tough. Learning how to deliver that work product that's of high quality, that's tough, but it's, yeah. You mentioned a family lawyer that was a past student that's that's thriving with what are ultimately a few simple tweaks around their yes. business model. That's yes. the kind of thinking it feels like the the, the new graduates uh, entering this yeah. this new economy and and existing lawyers that are thinking about how do they pivot their business models to this new reality. It's that tactical thinking that needs to be yeah. the, where the time is spent. By, by the way, I'm sure she's one of your customers because she's she's too smart not to not to not to have all her practice management hygiene uh, down here. And it was it, it was it was it was she happened to be a, a great marketer, uh, a, a great advocate, and 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 somebody who's just got rock solid moral fiber here is like. And then you add a legal education to that, and and you, and you have somebody that can. She came to my leadership class, and uh, all my students basically wanted to follow her follower into the, in, in, into the field. <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, um, Bill, fi final question. Um, what's your take on the, the bar exam? What do we think about the, the so-called bark apocalypse that's happening out there? So, uh, so uh, I, I, you know, I, I, when I, I, we, we talked about this question in advance. I've given a lot of thought to it here. And, um, uh, you know, this is one area where I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about here. And, the, and it's, it's twofold here. I do have a lot of opinions on how to test lawyers and how to uh, how to create a better system that that, that that works better longer term. But the politics about getting this thing to work here, because the uh, because these are managed by state supreme courts, uh, the, the 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 different segments of the bar are very influential. Frankly, there's protectionists and parochial interests that that uh, that the bar exam has served as a kind of gatekeeper function here. And the political realities of this. Uh, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the lack of kind of leadership because we have 50 different jurisdictions so balkanized here, 
Jack, I, 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 I applaud what Indiana is doing. It's a one-day online bar exam here. That seems like a step in the right to, uh, 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 direction here. I, I don't think the, the diploma privilege is going to work very good in the longer term. And frankly, it's probably a bad thing because uh, uh, the diploma privilege, because law schools would get potentially get very promiscuous in who they permit here. And you, 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 you'd admit a bunch of people that, uh, that, 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 that uh, frankly, you, you do need a modicum of reasoned ability to be an effective lawyer here. And, and if people want to be a lawyer that basically aren't being filtered out by the admission system, here's like the, the bar exam keeps you honest. It keeps the law schools honest here in terms of just being overly promiscuous with, with, mm -hmm. with admitting people because, uh, uh, and so, uh, so, uh, uh, so, uh, uh, but I don't have, I, I, I have ideas on what to do here, but the politics of it here are, are such a, such a world onto itself here that, that what's good and makes sense here and what can reconcile what's politically feasible. Those are two different issues <laughs> here. Yeah, I'm not sure how to solve the politics. Yeah. What, what I've read about the the issue, and, and I, I think the, you're right, the politics are an entirely separate issue, but at, at least in terms of the utility of the bar exam, I thought to myself, if we had the data set, and I, the problem is I don't really think we, we have a great data set, but it's it's shouting out for a Bill Henderson style data analysis and, yeah. and write up of around efficacy of the uh, bar exam, if we're looking at it as, a, as the filter that that uh, you're you're framing it as here's here's what, what I would say that the best study that's ever been done on this is by Marge Schultz and Shelley Zedeks. Mark Schultz is a professor at University of California, Berkeley. I think the, the first or second woman that was ever tenured there. And uh, and Shelley Zedek was an IO psychologist and he uh, and they did 20. They, they, they use gold standard IO psychology methods to identify 26 effectiveness factors. And uh, only six of them were correlated with LSAT and undergraduate GPA and law school grades here, and a couple of more negatively correlated. And so, uh, and so the, the, there's no doubt that, uh, that uh, the, the kind of the overly academic approach to bar exams is probably a bad thing, that there's, co there's competencies that, uh, that, uh, that, that aren't correlated with the, with the academics that are really, really key. Uh, I would love to see move us in the direction of, of, of kind of a practicum. Show me you could interview a client. Uh, show me that uh, uh, what your bedside manner is. Uh, show me that you can, uh, you can do some oral advocacy. And that stuff is not very correlated with, with, with the bar exam uh, measures. And so I would like to go down a kind of a, a, a clinical realm here and to show that you could do some things uh, in a kind of, a, kind of a, a simulated context. I think that that would be a better outcome because uh, uh, the the thing that just loads on your academic ability here that's that's too narrow. I agree. Um, well, Bill, we'll wrap up there. Uh, really loved our conversation. There's so much more I'd like like to talk to you about, but we'll need to to have a part two at some point. I uh, would really like to continue the conversation. But this has been fantastic, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jack. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast. 